Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I am not Joe Webb. I am Jenny Williams. I've co-hosted before on this podcast. Really glad to be back with you. And Joe Webb, you won't even hear him on this podcast. You are going to hear me. You are going to hear my friend Krista, and you are going to hear my friend Alba. And uh, we'll each tell you a little bit about who we are, and then we'll get started. So I'm Jenny Williams. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm the faith organizer at the ACLU of West Virginia, um, the co-founder of Justice and Jubilee, a movement for progressive of Christians in West Virginia and co-founder of the West Virginia Faith Leaders Network, uh, which is an interfaith network that focuses on advocacy. So I'm going to kick it over to our other co-host for today, Krista. Hi, I'm Reverend Krista Rexrode-Wolf. I use she, her pronouns, and I am a clergy person serving in a local church context, um, and I'm excited to be here. Great. Thanks, Krista. And we are so excited to host Reverend Alba Onofrio. And Alba, thank you so much for being with us today. Do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Sure, I'd love to. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I'm Reverend Alba Onofrio, also known as Reverend Six, because that's what I focus on and talk about. Um, I am also a executive director for an amazing LGBTQI plus organization based in the U.S. that works nationally and internationally. So my favorite work is sexual liberation. I'm one of the co-founders of the Sexual Liberation Collective, and I just love so many things. I love so many things about the South but and about where I come from, but Appalachia is one of my central identities. So I'm just so happy to be back at home with y'all in West Virginia. I'm in North Carolina, so that's really close. So just feeling happy to be home. Thanks so much, Alba. Um, I first met Alba um, a little less than a year ago. We had a meeting of a few people who were trying to organize around rights for transgender people in West Virginia and came seeking their um, advice and uh, were met with passion and generosity and so excited that they uh, agreed to be on this podcast. So I think you're really in for a treat. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of Alba's bio. Um, Alba is a Southern Appalachian, first-gen, Latinx, queer, evangelical femme who lives and loves in community with um, transgender and queer people of color across the South and in solidarity with those in the global South. So Alba currently serves as the spiritual strategist for Soul Force and focuses on spiritual healing and reclamation and subverting interlocking systems of domination by combating Christian supremacy and spiritual violence. And Ooh. that was a lot. You got that from, but that that's a combination of a lot of stuff all in one, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of stuff. So we're definitely going to be unpacking that um, to let folks know just a little bit more about Alba. They hold a master's of divinity from Vanderbilt Divinity School, uh, where their studies focused on theologies of sex, embodiment, and ethics based in queer desire. And the call in their life is to eradicate shame and fear wherever they're found in order to make way for the new creation that calls us all to live and love into our most authentic authentic truths. So if you don't want to keep listening, something is wrong with you. If you've heard this bio and are not, do not have your interest peaked. So um, run now, run now, because it's only going to go in from here. <laughs> the thing is, I read so much of the stuff you've created and there's not, there's not a faster way to say it. <laughs> it's so, I love expansive. what I love and I love who I love and I do it out loud. And, um, we, we were talking the other day about somebody said, you are antagonistically alive. And I feel the spirit of the living God flow through me in that very, in, I'm in that very antagonistically alive kind of way. As I know, many of our people in Appalachia will understand what that means to be antagonistically alive <laughs> in the current conditions. That's exactly right. Oh, man. Awesome. Okay. So we want to start by just breaking down a little bit of your bio. So um, the descriptors of you are Southern Appalachian, first gen, Latinx, queer, evangelical, femme. So could you unpack the pieces of that for us? And mama, that's a big one that should be in there. Oh, um, my kiddo is 13 this year, which feels impossible, but yeah, so my mom's family were immigrants from Colombia, South America, 
and came when my mom was a young person. Um, but I was raised by my father's family, which are coal mining folks from Virginia. Um, we lived in Asheville, right outside of Asheville, North Carolina, growing up. And I was raised by my great grandma. So she was my the youngest of a coal miner. And so I grew up with somebody who was in that kind of four generations back, born in 1914. So with her and her sisters and her contemporaries, I feel like I'm deeply Appalachian in the like, we're from here kind of Appalachian. And, and so that's how I grew up. Um, I was raised Southern Baptist in the Southern Baptist church and was, you know, we lived directly across the street from the church. My granny's best friend was a pastor's wife. So I literally spent every single day in church, love church was all about church. Um, and that was my central core context for most of my life. So that evangelical way of being, way of thinking, um, righteous indignation, fire in our bellies, that stuff is still very alive and real for me. And I claim that um, my mission looks a little bit different. I I have been named, um, I work with a church in Asheville called Jubilee Community, and I'm a missionary there, an evangelist. Um, and that's that those are messages of justice and love and inclusion and acceptance. They're different kinds of messages than someone might think when they think about spreading the gospel. But um, I still hold those close. They still inform me. They're my native language for how to talk about God and the divine. And so I use that closely. Um, but I spent a decade working with immigrants rights in North Carolina for newly arrived immigrants, mostly undocumented folks. And now I currently spend um, at least half of my time both in Latin America and East Africa um, doing work with our LGBT communities, human rights defenders, feminist, other women's uh, rights groups. And so I consider myself um, part of the Global South and more and more connected with my um, Latina family, particularly those of us in diaspora in the U.S., did I hit all of them? You did. I can't. Oh, no, no. Okay. There's one more. So some people okay. may not be familiar with the term femme. Yes. Let's talk about femme because I was 27 years old. The first time that I read about it in a book and saw other people like me, femme is a very particular for me, a very particular identity that I think so many women in Appalachia, like that's who I come from. And it's this orientation. It has a class associated with it. It's about women um, or feminine presenting people, like and not just women as in cis women, but but femme people who live fully into all of the different ways that we can be femme. So for me, I love high heels. Um, I love bright colors. I love flowy things. For other people, they really like makeup or jewelry or those kind. Like it's about an exaggeration almost. Well, some people would call us that exaggeration. Some of us, like me, would call it an appropriate response to a divine creator who creates a world so full of gaudy color, texture, images that God must be a drag queen. And my appropriate response and gratitude is to wear all the colors of the rainbow and wear my hair as high as I want to and my earrings as long as I want to and my heels as high as I can manage to, like, you know, totter down the, the, down the lane in them. But... It's a representation for me as an expression of, of reciprocity for the beauty, the incredible diversity that God has created in the world. And my most authentic expression from the inside out is a very feminine, very colorful, sometimes a little bit loud, opinionated kind of way of being. <clears throat> and that connects to other queer women who say like, I don't need to be in flannel. I mean, I'm dating myself, right? This is from 30 years ago, but I'll need to be in flannel and combat boots with a shaved head to be queer, to be a lesbian, to be bisexual. I actually can be in the fullness of my femininity and also love women or gender non-conforming people or men or whoever. Um, but there isn't this like a uh, straight jacket is what it feels like to me. If you were to tell me like, I needed to be more frumpy <clears throat> or if you could get some like you know, plaid. I'm just like, if it's in a floor length gown, maybe, but otherwise, no, thank you. So Fem is a really central and important identity for me, um, for some of us who have that identity and we're also cisgender women. Um, sometimes it, it means that we're very invisible, that when we move through the world, people don't necessarily look at us and be like, lesbian, queer, dyke, whatever the other words are that people describe our community, which for us provides some safety, but on the other side provides and in, creates invisibility. So we struggle as the counterparts of some of our more invisible um 
friends and beloveds in the alphabet soup of LGBTQIA plus 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 plus. I'm glad to hear you like claim that with such pride because I I have a confession to make, which is I watched a couple of your sermons on the Jubilee um, Communities YouTube channel. And the very first one I watched was from last July. And my first thought when I saw you come to the pulpit was those shoes are really great. <laughs> Thank you. And then I listened to the sermon and it was also brilliantly executed <laughs> and well written, but it caught my eye first. The shoes, the shoes did it. It's a big deal when you walk into a church or when I walk into a church in red heels or pink heels and my clergy dress is above the knee. Um, and my hair sometimes is short, sometimes it's in curls, sometimes I have a little, you know, hair piece or something that that creates more color. Because often as women, we are told that when we step behind the pulpit, that we should kind of sink into the background, like we should wear robes, we should wear suits, we should, you know, look like male, you know, the traditional male pastor role or priest role. And so for those, for me, I'm an activist first. And so my main congregation and ministry are for people who are in the streets, risking their lives, risking their livelihoods and their reputation. And they don't need to see me in a row. They need to see me there with them, ready to be arrested, ready to be in front, ready to have conversations about really hard things. And so I orient toward my community and also my queer community. And, you know, there is not a queer person in the room who doesn't say, you have a red and you're going to be preached. Let's sit, let's sit up and take a little more notice about what's going on here. Representation is real in that way. And so um, I live fully into that authoritarian kind of moment that I get when I'm at the pulpit to be like, this outfit also belongs behind the pulpit. <laughs> so if you invite me to church, you know what you're getting ahead of time. It's not a secret. <laughs> Listen, y'all, you can't see because, uh, you know, you're just listening to us here on this podcast, but you've got three preacher women and there are going to be so many hand snaps during this time (laughs) that we're going to have like blisters on our fingers. So just so you know, that's kind of the vibe that's going on here um, as we are recording. We're going to dig a little bit into Alba's work. So Alba kind of has... two halves of work. Um, Some is deconstruction and some is reconstruction. And so, um, Alba, we're going to talk a little bit about your work with Soul Force. Um, For those who don't know, it's a U.S.-based social justice organization um, that's working on ending the oppression of queer folks, um, both religious and political oppression. And to give a little bit of history, it was um, founded in 1998. Um, by Gary Nixon and his husband, Mel White. Now, this is the interesting part that a lot of folks may not know. So Mel was a ghostwriter for very popular evangelical figures. So Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham, Pat Robertson, and then he came out. Right. Okay. And so um, just a little sidebar that I have to tag in there because of the wonderful organization for which I work. Um, Mel was awarded the ACLU's National Civil Liberty Civil Liberties Award um, for his efforts to apply the, quote, sole force, unquote, principles of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, to the struggle of justice for sexual minorities. So he founded Soul Force just the year after he was awarded that. Uh, so you, Alba, are the spiritual strategist for Soul Force, uh, which is- And executive director. And executive director. So yes. just basically a boss all the way around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or the job that nobody else wants. <laughs> right, right. Right. So, I mean, this has been around by like Appalachian queer standards. This this organization has been around a minute, 25 years. 25 so can you years. say more about like what you've inherited and what your work entails with Soul Force? Mm-hmm. Well, we started in Lynchburg, Virginia to go give hell to the, you know, the religious right wing at Liberty University. And you know, it's funny because it was hell back in 1998, but really it was just like queer people exist and we should be allowed to go to school here. We should also be allowed to go to church and like receive communion. Like it was kind of like just what seems like basic Christian values around, you know, God loves all of us, that kind of thing. And but it was um, a ruckus. It was just causing a ruckus. And Mel White 
wrote a book called Stranger at the Gate that was one of the first gay and Christian kind of books. And I tell you, 25 years later, it doesn't matter what country in the world I'm in, almost every time I speak, somebody comes up to me and says, that book saved my life. In fact, we're doing, we're going through the archives um, for the 25th anniversary. And there's this beautiful picture of Billy Porter who says, that book saved my life and I'm sure it saved yours too, kind of thing from, you know, who who better than to Billy Porter to give a shout out to, to the work. Um, and the organization started and did a lot of kind of rabble rousing, holy troublemaker kind of work by taking busloads of mostly young white folks, LGBT folks and our allies to Christian college campuses around the country um, and having moments of conversation and dialogue when the campuses were open, when the campuses were not open, sometimes they would get arrested that just kind of called attention, attention to the issue. And that was a very beautiful and really important moment in our history in this country um, of queer rights and visibility. And now I would say 25 years later, we are a very different organization in some ways and very much the same in other ways, right? So it was founded on this idea of stopping spiritual violence, these like bright red stop sign stickers that were on t-shirts and hoodies and stickers that said stop spiritual violence. That's still the core of what we're doing is when people use the name of God, the word of God to withhold rights, take away rights or the human dignity of others. That is where we intervene ideologically and, and socially. And so that's still the same. What was true was we were starting. Alma, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second, yeah. because when you describe like that bright red graphic, right? Yes. It's like <laughs> so 90s, which just took me back to the plaid flannel shaved head comment. <laughs> like it's all sort of a mood from the 90s. Right. And now and now we've got, you know, more expression that looks different. So go ahead and tell us about that. <laughs> yes. Now we do kind of goals and, and jewel tones and, and those kind of feelings, I think in part because. One thing that Mel used to say that I don't think got picked up as much, people would be like, well, how many laws have you changed? How many, whatever, whatever, this kind of counting quantifiable thing. And what he would say is we're there to change us, not to change them, right? We're there for the closeted students on the campus to see that there are people who are LGBT and unafraid or who are willing to name and claim their identity and their religion. Um, and I think that's still true today of like a lot of what we do now is focused on how we heal our own community, our own selves as queer people, as women, as immigrants, many marginalized communities. How do we heal the internalized poison that we've drunk um, at the bosom of Christianity mostly for a long time so that we can stand in our full power, be our full selves? And our work now is a lot less about getting arrested and a lot more about deconstructing and demystifying the ideological fundamentalism of white Christian supremacy that's at play across politics, across culture, um, and helping folks understand where that exists so that we can stop being complicit with it, so that we can interrupt it when we see it. And so when we have those narratives in our own mind, we can start to untangle godliness or Christianity or our faith with the narratives that we've been fed as if they were from God, but actually cause death and harm rather than life and fullness of life. That's an amazing evolution. Yeah. So what is your role in that? What do you personally do? Where's your mm. work there? A little bit of everything. I started as a spiritual strategist. It is still what I do in my heart. Um, I'm mostly responsible for the vision and the overall kind of management and administrative part, fundraising part that lots of people don't love. But at the heart of the work that I feel called to do in Soul Force and in the world is trying to understand a little bit better and a little bit more clearly what are the things that that we believe about ourselves that are actually not from God, but what, but are from the world. So when I think about spiritual strategy, it's like so, so many of what happens is that people are scared to actually touch the Bible or actually talk about theology. People just want to be like, God is love, or I agree to disagree. Soul force is different because we're like, Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you have your Bible? Should I pull it up on my phone? Like, 
directly to the text or the theology, not being scared of God, not being scared of the Bible, not being scared of the theology, because whether or not we're people of faith, I'm a Christian minister, but there are other people on our staff and in our community who are not people of Christian faith or any particular faith. We believe that the way that God is weaponized, that has to stop. And so instead of being scared of the thing, what happens if we actually lean into the things? What happens if we actually look in those recesses of our hearts where we're like, but what if what she said was true? Or what if God really does hate me or is disappointed in me? Or what if the Bible really does say I'm going to hell? Like, instead of just letting those sit, which a lot of us just try to move on and push it out of the way or ignore it, we're like, how do we get in there and actually talk about that stuff? And so my job as spiritual strategist is about being like, all right, what are the narratives that you get used against most of us? How do we talk about it? How do we look at it? How do we reconstruct a faith or at least a defense. We have a, a set of work called Bible self-defense. And that's just about like, okay, let's look at that. What does Romans say? What does Leviticus say? Like, let's let's talk about it. Let's think about it. Let's be about it together and figure out how we from there um, move into a different place with that relationship. Even if we're no longer Christian, how do we move into a different place with our bodies with our spirits and with um, with each other and how we ask for what we deserve as citizens of this nation or as members of faith communities or as part of families, how do we not be ashamed? Because other people pick up on that. And this is the last thing I'll say. Sorry to keep talking. But it's this idea of like, when I was like, I think I'm bisexual. People like, no, you're not. I've known you your whole life. That can't be true. It's a phase. It's a bit of a when I'm like, this is who I am, and there's no doubt in my heart, I don't get those questions anymore. People are like, huh, that's, is that true? How can that, they start questioning them, their own assessment rather than mine. And I think the same thing is true with faith of like, I think God still loves me. Well, I don't know, because you're living this way and you have this lifestyle as opposed to like, no, 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 I know me and God are good. So what we need to talk about with your confusion or misunderstanding about the Bible or theology, we can talk about that over there, but we're not going to debate my salvation, my goodness, my basic human dignity. And that shift is everything. It shifts every conversation. It shifts every space. It shifts every movement. It sounds like um, that description is a great summary of not just where soul force has been, but like where you want to see it go to the, the language that's used on all of the materials I read from the organization was all about like collective liberation. And, um, I, I always think when people use that term liberation, we have to really unpack for folks, what are we being liberated from? And soul force has a name for, for that. They, um, the organization calls, the sort of destructive force that's at work, the oppressive force that's at work, um, spiritual violence. And when I first read that, I it was a that's a strong term, even if it's an appropriate term. I thought spiritual violence. Um, but I'm I'm curious about that term too, because I think people who are traumatized, um, whether it's in church or or some other way, don't often aren't often able right away to claim the term trauma. <laughs> You know, they sort Absolutely. of justify what's happened to them or they, they yeah. think too hard around it. And so yeah. I want you to talk a little bit about that term, um, spiritual violence. Like if I'm a person who's very new to deconstruction, um, yeah. what are sort of some of the markers or indicators that I have experienced spiritual violence? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think spiritual violence is such an important word because we have these words for like physical violence when somebody causes harm to my body right often we can see it or there's a we leave a bruise we leave a scar you know there's something there physical violence we're now developing to understand more about psychological violence or emotional violence when someone hurts my feelings and with somebody when i feel um like something inside is hurt then that can be emotional violence Spiritual violence is very much in that same way. Like most of the time it's an invisible violence. We can't see on our body the impacts of that violence. But when someone, and what spiritual violence is, is when somebody takes the authority of God or the Bible as in the word of God and uses that to back up whatever they're saying that causes harm to somebody, right? So it can be done by people we love. In fact, often in our closest circles, 
especially as queer people or as women or as little girls who, you know, were a little too loud or wore their shorts a little too short or whatever the things are, we receive that kind of impact because we hear things like, well, the Bible says, right? And we can feel it when, when that's coming at us, when we sang the song in church, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, right? That was a good, it was a kind of using the authority of God and what the Bible says to affirm, to love, to surround someone, right? The same thing is true in the reverse. When you say, you know, you are an abomination or your lifestyle, your actions are an abomination because the Bible says, because God says, it's like, I may be just me. Well, you put those three letters REV in front of my name. Now I'm a reverend. So I have a little more authority, but the ultimate authority in our society is God, right? And so when you say God said, or the Bible says that has an ultimate weight an ultimate, it's the ultimate trump card. And so when we use that to name people as sinners, as bad, as abominations, as going to hell, as as fill in the blank, right? Not just for sexuality, for relationship style, for status, for fill in the blank. That is a kind of violence that comes into us. And when that comes in, not just from church, but from the laws and how laws are structured in our society, I'm thinking about access to marriage. I'm thinking about transgender exclusion kind of um, laws. I'm thinking about critical race theory and what we're allowed to learn in school. When the, when the government says this is not good and it's backed up by people saying this is what the Bible says is what God says that gets into our beings and into our souls in ways that people may not be able to see, but only if you look at the level of suicide and self-harm and depression that we have within our community, that shows what that kind of violence impact is. So I think a lot of times when we're coming out or when we're just coming into this, a lot of times we'll be like, oh, well, I suffer from depression or I suffer from fill in the blank thing as if it's our individual thought, because most of us who are raised in a Protestant context, we are taught about individual sin. We're taught about individual culpability. We're talking about individual salvation rather than systemic sin, systemic salvation, systemic liberation. And so often, at least for me, it was like, oh, this is something that's wrong with me, or this is my fault, something I need to fix, something I need to pray away, something I need to be strong to resist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I behave out of that place, right? So in actuality, in the world that we're living in, in my opinion, depression is an absolutely appropriate response. Anxiety is an absolutely appropriate response. It's actually a very normal way of being when a lot of stuff on the outside is actually pushing back and telling us we're not good, we're not allowed to exist, we can't be fixed. And so it's about that kind of orientation of understanding that things that people say, even if they loved us, even if they were saying it out of care or concern or worry, that can still be violent. And when that's backed up in big ways by governments, by schools, um, by church denominations, then we have that inside us. And that is especially when we can't, aren't when we aren't able to pray it away. It makes us a failure both at not being able to solve our own sin problem issue and it makes us sinful in that we are living into that quote unquote lifestyle. So there's a thousand ways that that shows up, but I just want to like say a little bit more about what spiritual violence is and how that moves in our bodies. And we call it violence because its effects are just as concrete. We ought to, we self-exclude. We pull ourselves out of community often, out of church, out of family. Sometimes we're attacked, but sometimes it's just, I'm not, I don't belong here. I'm not welcome here. And, and we say, well, I'm the one who left or I'm the one who moved away or I'm the one who got distanced. But the violence that we anticipated because of how church was, because of how our family was, because of how our friends were, what people said. Um, that violence is very real and that isn't controllable by us. And so that's why we call that a violence because it does cause harm, even if we can't see the scars physically on our bodies. Hey friends, it's Joe here. I know Jenny said you wouldn't hear from me this episode, but I just had to break in for just a moment to share some really, really exciting news with you. 
Not only are we going to be recording a live episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast from the Wild Goose Festival this July 13th through 16th, and not only is Reverend Alba also going to be there, but you also can save $50 off your Wild Goose ticket just for following Accidental Tomatoes. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a -a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and spiritual seekers from all walks of life to explore justice, art, spirituality, and community. From engaging workshops to inspiring panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for almost everyone. And don't forget that beer tent. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I would love for you to join me there. It's a big part of why Accidental Tomatoes exists, and it's become a place where many of us have found a community that inspires, encourages, and supports us in the quest for justice and liberation in the world. So mark your calendars for July 13th through 16th, and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information and to buy tickets, visit www.wildgoosefestival.org. And if you want to grab that $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket, just use the discount code TOMATOES at checkout. That's T-O-M-A-T-O-E-S, TOMATOES. And I can't wait to see you there. The One of the interesting pieces I think you touched on just now is that it it is spiritual violence is often invisible, but it is also really embodied through like, Mm. like removal of self or isolation or um, in these sort of clinical terms, like depression or so. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things it's clearly amorphous, you know, it can look like you said a thousand ways, but, um, but it's also clearly identifiable. (laughs) In that, um, if it has uh, if it has created distance where there is supposed to be connection, maybe you've experienced some kind of spiritual violence. I also saw um, the use of the term um, weaponized morality, uh, which seemed yes. to be um, sort of the systemic name for the same sort of harm. Are Absolutely. those terms that you would use sort of interchangeably? Spiritual violence is something that happens to us all the time for different ways that we're categorized. So you could be a cisgender heterosexual man, but maybe those genes, well, nowadays, who knows? But in my day, those genes were just a little bit too tight. And maybe you got called a name or maybe you were like, well, you're not a manly man, which behind that had a like, you're supposed to be like God and God is this particular kind of virulent judge warrior man and therefore like there's a whole goodness stuff around that it just, just came in and lobbed at you as a comment or maybe it came from somebody in your family said you're not walking out of the house looking like that fill in the blank identity whatever that is that you're looking like um because you look like a floozy because again dating myself with English, See, but that is a because word you i have not heard in a long time <laughs> it's well you know in in my language is very um floral as my dress so I was, like I said, I was raised by a woman from Appalachia four generations ago. So a lot of my idioms come from from that era. But all that to say that kind of spiritual violence can be done with or without intention, which I think is actually very important for those of us who are people of faith um, to recognize that we could be perpetuating spiritual violence even without intending to. A lot of times people who are trying to be inclusive says, well, if God loves drug addicts and and, you know, alcoholics and murderers, then God surely loves y'all too, right? That's an effort to be more inclusive. And, and while we say that there's, there's, there's some, there's a violence there putting, you know, mental health addiction, physical violence against the taking life of another person and someone's love for their partner or potential partners in the same lump category and calling them all equal as sinners and that God loves. So, so spiritual violence is like this big overarching term. Moralized um, religion feels like or weaponized morality. Those I would probably use interchangeably is this orientation that is about 
an entire system that it has connected with it. Um, and so when we use that interpersonally, it hurts. But when we use that systemically at the level of nation, at the level of denomination, at the level of you know school system, its impact affects so many more people. And so that I would probably use even in a more structural way where spiritual violence to different degrees, right? More greater or lesser violences. Um, I would use kind of ubiquitous all over the place that we experience just because of being in, in social society and being in a Christian context where lots of us like to be right and be like, well, the Bible said, I'd love to support your cause, fill in the blank cause, but the Bible said um, that's kind of a, a different level of, of where it seeps in. Alba, one of the things I heard you say just now is that sometimes um, allies, people who want to be allies or people who who are trying to like do the thing they know is right are a little misguided. And so I just want to take this opportunity because I have I could talk to you about this for like hours. Everything I read was incredible. You made me think of a million more questions, but I, I want to point people to the Soul Force website quickly. Yeah. Um, because uh, there are some really good free downloadable resources. You all call that the spirit resource library. And yeah. there are two particular pieces. And I saw that you wrote those. Um, they're great. The two particular pieces, I mean, they're all wonderful, but mm -hmm. um, the pieces on Christian supremacy and the piece entitled what you need to know about the Bible are just yeah. two I wanted to highlight while we were talking, because I think they're really they answered some of the questions that I encounter with people who are just beginning deconstruction and the yes. people who are starting that work, who've maybe figured out, okay, yes, I've experienced some type of spiritual violence. I need to, um, I need a first step in the healing process. And I think those would be good places for people to start if they're just trying to figure out where they are in the, yeah, yeah where they are in the deconstructive journey. Yeah. Sometimes many of those resources, they could be used in church communities and small groups. The other side, though, at least for me, was I needed just some more information before I could open my heart enough to change my mind or have a different opinion or even explore more. Like somebody had to explain to me, I can read that thing that that says in the Bible and I can see that it says homosexuality. So I'm going to need you to explain why that is not true or has a different possibility before I can listen to all this other, you know, woo, I would have said woo woo stuff about feelings and whatever else back in the day. Um, so I, I love those resources. We created those resources for that first kind of step. It's like, okay, let's back up. This is what we need to understand about the Bible, or these are some definitions of why white Christian supremacy is not Christianity and why we are not coming for your Jesus or your salvation, but rather we're trying to separate when religion gets co-opted and stolen. I say often like we as people of faith should be the most pissed off that our God got stolen and is sequestered somewhere and being used to cause all this harm and terrible, terrible laws and feelings and all this stuff when it's all got stolen and co-opted and sit over there like other people. Yes, I know they're mad, whatever, but I'm this because that's the God I grew up loving and knowing and am dedicating my whole life to like, how dare somebody use that God to hurt someone? So um, yes, I encourage folks to go explore. If you have questions about Sodom and Gomorrah, we have fun ones talking about the gender of God. Did you know God had a gender? Well, there's some information there for you to go check out. So um, yes, thank you for mentioning those. We're very proud of them. And we work with a whole team and community to create those um, really hopefully accessible and easy to access for resources. Thank you, Alba. So for the listeners, we are not done and you are going to want to stick around for this part because you're really going to like this. So when we were talking before we started recording, um, Alba gave us a really helpful framework for their work, which is that the work with Soul Force is very um, deconstruction oriented, kind of recognizing and identifying and beginning to heal from that. And then Alba does a whole bunch of work with reconstruction um, under the moniker Reverend Sex. Uh, so yes. can you say a little bit about your work as Reverend Sex? 
Well, you know, I just got so sick about people talking about, well, I would like to support you all and you're, you know, trying to get equality, but I have concerns about the family. I have concerns about like, there are all these concerns that come up of the children. At the end of the day, everybody was actually concerned about butt sex. And I was like, if we're talking about sex and sexuality, if we're talking, if this is actually the hysteria, because it is about a fragile masculinity that for many, many centuries has been able to impose their sexuality on the bodies of others, period. Whether those bodies are children, whether those bodies are women, whether those bodies are the opposing army that we are conquering in battle. And that idea that gay people and particularly gay men could do that kind of harm or domination to cisgender heterosexual men is often the hysteria when we have this whole like gay hysteria, trans hysteria, where there's now legal arguments that people are using around the harm and murder of trans women or gay men as a response because somebody freaked out because they got, they realized that they were attracted to this person who didn't have the genitals that they expected. Like at the end of the day, we are talking about bodies. We're talking about bodily sovereignty or autonomy and penetration. And there's plenty of that in the Bible. There's plenty of that in society. There's plenty of that in the world. But because of how people maneuver around goodness and God, it's actually almost never about God. It's almost actually never about family or about children. It's about this hysteria of like, but what if somebody comes on to me? Or what if somebody's a... And it's about that imposition, right? It's about that imposition and what do we do to protect ourselves against the possibility of that imposition? So I was like... Skip that. We just talk again, just like Soul Force, why I was made for this work. I was like, well, let's just talk about then. There's so much sex in the Bible. There's so much stuff about the body. Let's just go straight there and we can talk about what we're actually concerned about, what we're actually um, have questions about, of like the real stuff that never gets talked about in church, which is like, how do two women have sex? Or who's the man in the couple? Or what? Well, you can't have children. So that means God doesn't condone it. I mean, just all of these questions that are based on very concrete um, realities around sexuality, sexual repression, understanding our own bodies, our access to pleasure. A lot of people are just really mad that queer people and trans people are prioritizing their authenticity, their desire, their pleasure. And that we've been taught that that was bad, that that was greedy, that that was you know, all these sinful things. And so there's so much repression within our entire society and particularly within Christian communities that I really believe that the work that LGBT people are forced to do just to survive past all of the oppression, all of the, you know, you're not allowed, you're terrible, whatever. For for those of us who do survive, which is certainly not all of us, right? For those of us who do survive, there is some deep reckoning that we have to do with our bodies with sexuality, with God, with authenticity. And that is what the stuff I actually find really juicy because I think there is salvation there. I think there is hope there, not just for queer people, but for all people. I think the work of sexual liberation is spiritual work and is movement building work and is urgent and is a primary vehicle, um, which includes being able to say no, being able to have your body respected, being able to not have sex. It's not about all sex all the time with anybody. It's about the ability to say for my own body and my own being what I want, what I don't want, when I want it, with whom I want it, and how I want it. And that, I think, is hope um, in a very spiritual and connected way for all of us, not just for our community of LGBT people. You're, you're Krista is your thinking. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking hard about everything you just said. Um, but your um, your evangelist roots are showing. That's the first thing I want to say, because it's like, good news for the people of God, right? Yes. Um, yeah. In yes. fact, um, in fact, uh, a lot of what I was reading on your site, on the Reverend Sex website, um, referred to the gospel of the erotic. There's a whole section on your website about that. And, and in that you reference um, a piece of writing called the uses of the erotic. And um, I just want you to can you give us a, a Cliff Notes version? Tell us about that and how Audrey Lord's work sort of informed your own. Yeah, Audrey Lord is an amazing ancestor, Black, feminist, um, lesbian, Caribbean woman, poet. Um, and so 
she was not a theologian to the outside world, I think, but she's absolutely a theologian to me, similar to Gloria Anzaldúa, who was a like Chicana feminist theorist, right? So there are these two figures that for me are like, you weren't theologians, but you sure were talking to the spirit of the living God that I know in my body. And so um, I feel blessed to be able to kind of pull on that. So the gospel of the erotic is basically this idea, right? The gospel being the good news, what's supposed to go out to all the people, um, what comes from the divine to set us free. And so the gospel, the uses of the erotic that Audre Lorde talks about is how our erotic part includes our sexuality and our sexual desire, but is not only about sexuality. It's about the internal, in my paraphrasing version, and it's only seven pages. So everybody should download that speech for free because it is very short and it's wonderful. She was giving a, a wonderful talk many years ago now, but the idea that the stuff inside us, some of us might call it intuition, some of us might call it feeling, some of us might call it, might call it God, that says yes or no, and we feel it in our body, right? Have you ever had that moment where you can feel somebody's eyes on you, but you're not looking at them and you like look around to be like, who's? you can feel that there's a, there's a feeling there. Well, for so many of us who are LGBT people, there was a moment for me, I was evangelical and would have told you homosexuality was an abomination until the moment that a girl kissed me and I just about lost my mind because there was something in me that said, in spite of this is before Ellen is out on TV, this is before there was internet, I was in Appalachia, like, you know what I'm saying? A very tight, small community. But in spite of all the things I had heard from my family, from society, from culture, from church, from religion, that this was bad. There was something in me that connected with her at 15, another 15 year old, that was so powerful that I said yes to that connection in spite of everything I had been told. And so many of us have coming out stories that are similar. Something happened in our life that in spite of everything that we were taught or we were told, we said yes to a thing. Um, and that yes to a thing is the thing that I would call the erotic. And so sometimes it's like, you know, I need to go to church. Sometimes that yes is I need to get out of this marriage. Sometimes that yes is I actually do not want to finish that degree I started or fill in the blank a million other things. Sometimes it's just like, you know what? I don't want to get up off this couch right now. I'm very clear that I want to sit here. That kind of orientation of what brings us pleasure, and I don't just mean sexually like turns us on, but brings us, yes, that brings us joy. For so many of us who have been harmed by church, nature is that. Going hiking in the woods, connecting with creator in creation, like Whatever those yeses are in our bodies, that is the erotic that Audre Lorde talks about. And she talks about how we have had to be taught not to trust and believe that feeling because naturally we go toward that feeling, toward that yes, or we stay away from that no. And so we have to be taught that that is demonic, that that is a slippery slope, that that is the curse of Eve, that that is something to be ignored or squashed or killed because we naturally go toward that. And so her argument is we need to reconnect with that as much as we can, whether it's writing a poem, or building a bookcase, she says, like whatever that is, it includes sexuality, but it's not specific or exclusive to sexuality. And that is kind of, for me, what I call the Imago Dei. That idea, that erotic is what I feel like God put in me that is a divine spark from the creator that I can tap into that kind of, oneness with God, with creation. And that is a guiding for many of us. We call that intuition, whatever you want to call it. There is a sense that is from the inside out that gives us knowledge and wisdom and information. And we are taught to unlearn and unlisten. And the gospel of the erotic is saying, not only is that good to listen to your intuition and your body, but rather that is also where the voice of the divine comes from and lives. It is not an external to internal, not the Bible said, God said, I believe my pastor told me it is when I pray about this, when I center this, when I think about this, it feels right, right for me. And so me being in my natural state is a queer state, is being somebody who has a particular gender identity or sexual orientation, a particular relationship status lives in a particular place. Like I live rurally, not in a big city, but those are things that for me align with my core, not what I should be, not what status is, but what, when I sit with that, I'm like, 
oh yeah, 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 this is for me. And so that is the short version of what Audrey says is the, the erotic and how I feel like not only is that the erotic and not only is that good, but that is where God is. And so when they tell us not to listen, not to believe, not to follow our heart, so to speak, um, that's actually taking away God because God speaks to us if we're still enough and we have ears to listen and we haven't squashed that voice because society told us that we weren't allowed to Um I find so much hope, so much possibility, and so much healing in doing that recentering and recalibrating from the inside out. I love that. Okay. I want to, it's such a beautiful and expansive view of the word erotic and all of that, uh, what all of that brings to our life, our vitality, our faith, our understanding mm-hmm. of our relationship with God. But I do for a second just want to focus on the very sexual nature of erotic. Right. So let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. So, um, uh, one of the people that was my entry into this field of thought is Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm-hmm. Right. And to look at her pleasure activism, um, first heard about that in her framing of her community organizing work about not being um, that if we are not initially, I mean, intentionally seeking and experiencing joy in the midst of the struggle, liberation will never be ours. Right. So that was, uh, you know, you are, you are captured by the patriarchy, by capitalism, whatever, if all you're doing is the grind. Right. And then, so I was really thinking about that in terms of community organizing and then learned that was really all centered in sexual pleasure for her Mm. and her book, definitely going to have a link to this in the show notes. Pleasure activism is something that people should look at. So when you look at Adrienne Marie Brown, when you look at part of what Audre Lorde is talking about, when you look at the work of like Emily Nagoski, right, who's really talking about particularly women and sexual liberation, um, mm-hmm. help. I'm interested to hear how you articulate um, with these people who are not speaking from a Christian point of view, who, like you said, Audrey Lord not does not understand herself as a theologian, right? Um, how you, in coming up with this sense of the divine and our power and our intuition and being in touch with ourselves, how y- you hold these non-Christian authors and the gospel together, or where you would name the gospel in the middle of those authors as it's particular to sex and pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. Because you've got these people who are clearly speaking about the way God works in the world and creation and all of that, but you will have uh, critics and you have no problem with critics. Um, You will have (laughs) have problems who are like, oh, you know, you know, I was just mapping on uh, Christianity to these concepts that spiritual but not Christian people are articulating. So how would you counter that claim? Well, you're just kind of like appropriating their work and throwing some Christian language on it. So can you say a little bit about that, about how um, that is inherently the gospel to you? Mm, Yes, I'd love to. I think one of the main parts is that it's hard for those of us who come from very, or well, I'll just speak for me, I came from a very closed world where we didn't have, we didn't have access and nor did we want access to the dialogue that was happening in the world. So I think it's actually really important for those of us who straddle activist spaces and religious spaces to do some of that bridging work. So sure, absolutely taking that, mapping it on, um, this work has been going on for a really long time. So I would say, you know, it's it's kind of a fusion in that way. And it's through the lens of somebody who is in the activist world and in the Christian world. But as somebody who is a Christian, I kind of see everything through a Christian lens. So we might we might have that same conversation about just about anything from patriotism to, you know, what it means to be a mother. Um, so I want to say that for one side. But this other side is that of all the, I mean, I don't know a lot of a lot of, about a lot, I don't know a lot about other religious traditions, but our religion as Christians is an incarnational religion. We literally center our faith on the body. The idea that I would say a trans God, right? A God 
came and transformed into human form, came and lived on the earth in a human body, in flesh and blood, died, was buried and resurrected, and then again had another transition into God's spirit. That means that God is ultimately concerned with the condition of the body, the physical flesh and blood, not the soul, the spirit, all those are important, but we spend so much time thinking about what's going to happen after we die. Important, but we literally serve a God who found it so critical to understand flesh and experience in the body that God came in human form. And that being central to our religion it feels like the conditions of the body are core to our faith. And so when Jesus, we have in the gospels, Jesus caring about the body, the human condition, about healing and about sensuality. Jesus spent most of his ministry eating and drinking and being by the water. And, you know, like it's very sensual ministry. You know, women are touching his feet, hair, tears, these are very corporeal things. These things that had been taught for a long time are not holy, right? They're separate from God because God is up there and is immortal. And so the mortal things that make us bleed and sweat and come, those things are not on the table, right? For this kind of God. But we believe in a God who cares for the body ultimately. And therefore, for me, sex and sexuality and pleasure is not only something that Jesus experienced that we have record of in the gospel in all of the gospels, but is something that is core to how we should be living out our faith. And many of us do that in how we care for the poor, uh, how we take care of those who are sick or infirmed, but we don't spend nearly enough time on the sexuality and the pleasure part. And, you know, I want to talk about things like, okay, but God gave me a clitoris. My clitoris has more nerve endings than twice what an average penis does. Do you know what that means? The clitoris has zero, and I mean zero, not one single function in reproduction. Please help me understand why God gave me a clitoris, why God gave other people a prostrate with all of these pleasure endings. That's about function. That's about feeling. And so if it has nothing, the prostrate has nothing, nothing to do with reproduction. The clitoris has nothing to do with reproduction. It's just there for pleasure. So you're going to tell me that sexuality is just about reproduction when we have physical evidence to the contrary, that God blessed us with all of these organ taste buds, fingertips, all of these things that are not about the function of reproduction, but about feeling and living fully in our bodies and in creation and in the world. And so it feels like there's no way in my world, there's no way to separate Christianity from sexuality, from pleasure, from sensation. And especially as a queer person, I'm often defined as a homosexual fill in the blank, a homosexual woman, a homosexual whatever. We start with the homosexual part and I get to be the person afterwards. So that means we in this community already have to define and defend ourselves based on sex, pleasure, desire, or what people are imagining, because I tell you, it's not always that exciting. It's great. It's super exciting, but it's not always <laughs> that exciting. So I think that's a central part of what we're trying to talk about is like, all right, you want to put that on us? You want to be like, y'all are assigned the sexuality piece? All right, let's do that. Let's go deep. Let's be about it. Let's understand it through our lens of faith and 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 who we are. And for me, it's like, oh, there's so much God there. There's so much God there if we look for it. I feel like the bridge work that you're talking about gets done um, best by like wom like womanist theologians. So Absolutely. I'm, uh, you know, and and you and I have probably a particular appreciation for folks like um, Reverend Dr. Emily Towns, who was the Absolutely. dean at the at Vanderbilt's Divinity School until just recently. And one of the things that they talk about is uh, uh, one of the ways that that bridge works for them is that. Um, it's not just about tapping into something now, which is important, you know, the, that, um, the power of the erotic isn't just about feeling what you're feeling in one particular moment, but it's also the only way that you have any imagination for the mm. new creation, mm. you know, access to mm. pleasure and joy is the only way to see some other future 
yes. um, better possibility. Yes. Um, and I've heard you do that in some of your work too, that imaginative exercise you did at the beginning of your speech at Wild Goose in, in 2019. I, I hope that that's published somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> so I think you Wild should Goose give it to us it out somewhere. <laughs> give it to us for the show notes. So we, we have come up against the end of our time. Um, <laughs> I feel like what has just happened is we have just hit a climax and we don't even get to cuddle together afterwards, right? Like we're- <laughs> go, go find us on the interwebs. Go <laughs> find us on- Instagram, YouTube, you know, come cuddle with us virtually afterwards or come find us. <laughs> Alba, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we're going to have a ton of resources in the show notes for people. Um, we're just so grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, I, I think for me, just to say particularly that it's rooted in Appalachia, um, these are not conversations that Appalachians are typically having um, mm. around the dinner table, around the uh, covered dish table, um, around the communion table, right? Um, these are not conversations that are widely being had. And so we so appreciate your work um, in this area. Well, let me tell you, Appalachians are the bravest people I've ever met. So I believe if anywhere we can have those conversations and just be real with each other, I'm like, I'll bring the fruit salad you bring the deviled eggs and let's just talk about it because that's my experience is like we are brave and we are willing to talk about some shit that other people ain't willing to touch with a 10 foot pole. And some of them don't have easy answers. And so I'm just like, yeah, this is my home. This is where I'm from. And I'm so grateful for the invitation. I love, I love, love, love these conversations, this juiciness. And um, please call me anytime. It's been such a delight and such a pleasure to be here with y'all today. Thank you, Alba. Thank you, Krista. And to the Accidental Tomatoes listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope that you will check out the Accidental Tomatoes website, accidentaltomatoes.org, org, com, com, accidentaltomatoes.com. And um, <laughs> hope that you will join us for another episode in the future and encourage you to keep on growing outside the fences. Mm -hmm.